0: Every time there's an announcement like this, someone says to me, oh, you have to write about this, but I don't want to, because I mean, first of all, I'm not a Salinger expert. You know, I, I've done a lot of research into Salinger. I probably know more than your average person, but I'm not, I actually think you know way more about Salinger than I do. I can't quote Salinger at will, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, But also because, I mean, I think like everyone, my fear is that this work is bad. Um, I, I, for a long time feared that there was no work which I think is
1: a valid fear. Hi everyone, welcome to this week's episode of Tourist Information. I'm really happy to have on the show this week, Joanna Rakoff. She is a novelist, a memoirist, a journalist. Um, I found out about her by her great book, My Salinger Year, when she worked in J.D. Salinger's literary agency and was charged with answering his fan mail. Uh, That book has been turned into a movie, which came out, I think, at the beginning of COVID. It's very good. Sigourney Weaver, in particular, playing uh, Joanna's boss at the literary agency is, is wonderful, as always. And so I really wanted to focus this conversation about the Salinger effect. If you've seen the documentary on Salinger or the oral history that came out at the same time, both of those sold for seven figures. Weinstein picked it up for Miramax, and uh, I think, I'm not sure if it was Scribner's, but a major publishing house put out the oral history. Um, This is kind of unusual for a guy who had one novel and a series of short stories, and the only ones he'll let people read are the ones in The New Yorker. (laughs) So... I reached out to Joanna while I was working on an article for Bloomberg about a woman named Betty Epps, who in 1980 was 40 and kind of at a crossroads in her life, and went to Cornish, New Hampshire, and mailed Salinger a letter that she wanted to meet him. And when he showed up to meet her in Windsor, Vermont, he, she clandestinely had a recorder in her armpit and recorded 27 minutes of conversation. And Betty's now 80, lives in Pearl, Mississippi. And we spent probably seven hours talking on the phone. Really liked her after the initial caginess because the first thing she said to me was, I'm not giving you the tape. You know, don't expect the tape. Uh, and I said, I don't give a shit about the tape. I give a shit about you and having this tape and what it means to you. And she said, I stole his property. I've never stolen anything in my life. But I stole this man's voice and Jerry himself told me my voice is why I couldn't become an actor. That's why my voice is meant to be heard on the page and you have stolen it. And nobody has heard it since her editor and a lawyer in 1980. And she told me after our conversation that she was putting it in her will to be burned in the crematorium along with her body. And so I wanted to talk all about this and a lot more in relation to Salinger, uh, with Joanna, because Joanna is one of these people who has heard his voice and met Salinger when he came into the literary agency and answered all the fan mail. So there's just so much there. And I'm fascinated by the Salinger effect almost more than the artist himself and, uh, So Joanna was very generous to give me some time to discuss this obsession of mine. So I hope you enjoy this week's guest, Joanna Rakoff on Tourist Information. So I I guess maybe a place we could start with the Salinger book is the idea for it, and then we can kind of get to the response of it, this enormous response, and then this surreality
0: of um, a movie and <laughs> all of that. Yeah. Um, do you mean like what was the impetus for the book? Like how did I? Yeah, because it just it just seems like such a. I mean, how many books have have the
1: kind of angle that yours did? I mean, um, I-, I guess like. That, I guess framing it for people who don't know, who haven't had a chance to read it yet when you're working at J.D. Salinger's literary agency, did you have any sense that you are kind of like Michael Lewis at Solomon Brothers? Like, there is a book here. Like there's just no, you're Abraham Supruder in terms of you're dealing with an author who sold 75 million copies of something.
0: Yeah, no, not in a million years. So um, maybe I'll back up for listeners and explain. Um, So the premise of my Salinger year um, is I, um, it's a memoir and I, so it's not a premise, it's my life, but it's still the premise. Um, I worked as the assistant to J.D. Salinger's agent in 1996, um, like for the entire calendar year of 1996. Um, I was a poet. I was writing poetry and publishing just a little bit. Um, and I, did not even know what a literary agency was when I took this job, much less. Um, did I know that Salinger was a client of this agency? Um, just so anyone a little younger understands, you know there was the internet existed, but it was not um the kind of robust thing that it is today. So it was we weren't in a sort of cultural moment of looking everything up in advance. Um, of it happening. And so I went to this interview with this literary agency, quite, quite literally not knowing what a literary agency was, and not knowing anything about it at all, except what um, I was sent there by a headhunter, a placement agency for the publishing industry. And so I knew a little bit, basically what the headhunter had told me, which was that it was New York's oldest literary agency, um, and that they had a lot of great um, kind of canonical clients like F. Scott Fitzgerald. Um, she just named one or two. I think she named like F. Scott Fitzgerald and Langston Hughes. Um, and she also told me that my boss was a kind of scary lady, to paraphrase her, um, who had trouble um, retaining assistants. And um, and I actually said, you know, oh, I'll have no trouble with that because my mom's kind of like that. <laughs> and um, and so I I got this job. Um, and discovered, you know, on my first day that Salinger was a client. Um, and I I feel like I should back up and explain. You asked me if I thought as I was working there that I was going to write a book about this. And the answer is absolutely not, like not in one million years. Um, but I feel like I should go back and sort of explain kind of historically part of the reason for that, um, sure. you know, which is that the age in which we live in which it is not just common, but kind of the norm for writers to write in the first person, to write um, in a pretty transparent mode about their life, um, for journalists to insert themselves into almost any story that they write so that they become a character in the story or they're um, very actively narrating the story. Um, That was not the norm in 1996. So, 1996, 97, like, or I suppose 1995 was really around the time that these kind of big, world changing blockbuster memoirs came out, like one of them being Mary Carr's The Liars Club. Um, That's the first one that comes to mind, that really kind of changed the literary scene. Um, And that year was also the year that James Atlas, the very prominent book critic, wrote a cover story for the New York Times Magazine, essentially positing that memoir was the form of our day because of these, these sort of four or five blockbuster memoirs. Another one was Girl Interrupted by Susanna Kaysen. There was a handful of them. And this this sounds like completely normal now in 2021, but in 1996, it was not, it, it was a kind of radical idea. And for someone who, like me, I I was a um, I had been a doctoral student in English. I thought of myself as a sort of high literary scholar um, who studied high literary forms. Um, memoirs seemed kind of like the kind of, you know, laugh track sitcom version of a novel. It didn't seem like a legitimate form. And, um, and it, it felt like a, a kind of cheap form. Um, it, it felt like memoirs often trafficked in tabloidish, elements of the writer's lives. Um, and I remember saying to friends, um, I don't understand why you wouldn't just write this as a novel. You know, why would you write it as a memoir? If you write it as a novel, then you have more control over it. Why not just write an autobiographical novel rather than making it a memoir? Well, now the world is obviously completely different. So, So, in 1996, when I had this job, the idea of writing a memoir about anything didn't even occur to me. You know, I thought of memoir as a form utilized by grand, usually men, (laughs) writing at the end of their lives, kind of recollecting um, their experiences. Um, I didn't think of it as something that someone, you know, 30 or younger would write. Um, Now, you know, I, of course, feel completely differently. The memoir, you know, is is sort of equivalent to the novel um, in terms of a sort of literary form at this point. And I I think The truth is, from my experiences working in publishing that many readers are actually more interested in reading memoir than than fiction. Um, That's been changing a little to my relief, Um, but there are ways in which memoir can do things um, for you and allow things for you as a writer that fiction can. So anyway, to really answer your question, it it didn't even occur to me um, to write a memoir, but there's one other reason that it didn't occur to me. And it was that the agency at which I worked um, really had a very kind of old world feel. Um, And there was kind of a code of silence about what went on at the agency and also with regard to their writers. So Salinger obviously, very obviously, um, valued his privacy more than anything, more than his writing it seems like actually toward the end of his life. And the idea of writing a book that would expose the agency and Salinger's life was repellent to me. Um, And even years later, when I sat down to write the book many years later, um, I still had misgivings about betraying the agency and betraying Salinger, and I played some mental tricks on myself to get over <laughs> over that, which maybe we'll get to. But um, but yeah, it didn't occur to me to write about this until m- much later, and the idea was not even mine. It was it was given to me by someone else.
1: Mm, interesting. Do you feel one of the things we've never talked about? I mean, for for people listening, like you and I, have had some rather extensive conversations about Salinger and, and, and some of the material we're talking about. Um, I know that when I was writing about Cuba, I just know it's a forbidden f- fruit for people. So there's an instant sort of, I can't go there and I want I want to because it's supposed to be like the United States in the 1950s in this kind of golden era. There is something for, for me about it that felt a bit prostituting of that for me. and I. I, I'm not trying to put that on to you, but I just know when you have proximity to somebody that people are so curious about. I mean, even 2013, Shane Salerno's documentary and the oral history sell for seven figures. Documentaries and oral histories are not renowned for that kind of marketability, <laughs> um, especially not about some um, notorious reclusive author. It, it's all very unusual. To have Salinger in the title of your book, is there a part of you, I know Joyce Maynard was very uncomfortable that all critics obsessed with was the six months or so that she, maybe it was a year, that she spent with Salinger. Is there a part of, it's my story, it's not his story, and yet the marketing department must say we need as much Salinger as possible because of that massive built-in audience. Was there any conflict on that level with how
0: it's marketed? Um, there was not actually, um, you know, interestingly, I mean, I came to write this memoir, let me just explain a little, I came to write the memoir in a kind of gradual way. It wasn't sort of like one day I thought like, hey, I'm going to write this memoir and said to my, oh my agent, like, hey, let me write this memoir and let's sell it. And Salinger's going to be the hook, but it's really going to be about my life. Um, I, I think that this is, I mean, like a little bit of pop psychoanalysis of me is that like, I'm not. <laughs> I'm a person who's not a huge planner in terms of my life. I seem to have had a career that is kind of like gone where it's taken me. I just had to give a couple of sort of career type talks at a couple of different universities. And as I was talking to students, I realized how meandery my career is. And I feel like yours is maybe a little the same, actually. Um, You know, I so I never so. I never thought to myself, like, okay, I'm going to write a memoir that's really a coming of age story, but Salinger is going to be the hook. Um, What really happened is that I, in 2001, so um, it just, it felt like forever since I had left the agency. But um, in reality, it was just a few years, but I was very young. So those four years felt like a million years and I felt like a completely different person. Um, In 2001, I was working in a magazine called Lingua Franca that I loved. It was my dream job. It went under after September 11th. And um, I started doing some reporting for, you know I was already freelancing, but I was doing reporting um, in different ways for the Times and a bunch of other magazines. And um, I had a kind of mentor at the Times who's a kind of storied to use that word again, salty reporter named Ralph Blumenthal, who was wonderful to me, um, used me as a stringer on a bunch of things. And um, I don't know what I did to deserve his mentorship. Truly, I don't, like I didn't go to journalism school. There's no reason that he would take an interest in me, but he did and he was great to me. And um, one day he um, had called, basically called me into the times offices their old grubby offices, not their new beautiful offices, <laughs> and um, and we had coffee and a pastry, and he said to me, so listen, I've been thinking about your career, and I think your strength lies in your writing, not in your reporting, and he said, like, you're a good reporter, but anyone can be a reporter. Your strength lies in the way you put sentences together, and so for you to move past where you are, you need to start writing personal essays about things that are singular to you. And I actually said to him, There is nothing that's singular about me. You know, I grew up in the suburbs, my dad was a dentist. Um, hilariously, there's an incredible tragedy at the heart of my family. And there, you know, there are so many actually kind of big like objectively interesting things about my family but at the time this did not didn't seem that way to me and my new book is about one of those things like that i had two siblings that were kept a secret from me for my whole life but um yeah. but i i was like there's nothing interesting about me i don't know and um and so we he's he's a great reporter and a great interviewer so we kept talking and at one point um he was telling me a story about um a one woman show he'd seen about that had to do with someone's first job that was in some crazy field, like she was like a burlesque dancer or something like that, like something again objectively interesting. And I was like, oh my god, my first job was so boring in comparison. I was an assistant at a literary agency, and basically all I did was answer JD Salinger's fan mail. Like I have nothing compared to that. And he was like, um, Joanna, that's your story. You need to you need to write an essay about that. And And I was like, no, I don't. And then we sat there for an hour, and I told him all these stories about the agency and the fans. And but I left thinking, oh gosh, of course I have to write an essay about this. So, um, you know, a year within that year, um, I I was having pitch meetings at magazines, and I went into a magazine, still unsure of whether anyone would hire me to write a personal essay because I sort of thought those are, you know, personal essays are assigned to people that are already famous, and. that's the kind of world we were living in whereas now that's not true but that did seem to be true in 2002 at this point and so i had this pitch meeting and a magazine and i had all of these like carefully researched reported pieces that i explained to them in detail. And they were like oh that's interesting and asked me some questions and then as we got up to go i said oh there's one other thing i could write um a personal essay about answering salinger's fan mail and they said yes that's it do that we'll send you a contract so i wrote This essay, and at that point, you know, I think it came out in 2003. I, you know, I was interviewed for all sorts of newspapers. Agents, editors called me, and the, you know, asking me to turn it into a book. Um, Friends of mine who worked at publishers said, you know, everyone is can't believe I know you, and they're wondering, you know, can I convince you to turn it into a book? And I, I was honestly shocked. I, I think so. It's kind of the opposite of what you're saying that I. Um. I knew that Salinger was of interest to people, but I really didn't understand of how much interest. And I think I also didn't understand how singular my position was. I didn't really understand the extent to which, you know, I really was one of the few people that talked to Salinger in the last decades of his life. I didn't get that. I really didn't. And I also happened to be a writer. So there were other people that talked to him who were just regular people like who worked at his grocery store or whatever, or like his agent, but I'm a person who's a writer and he had a huge effect on my life. So I had, you know, a a story to tell that was really about him, um, in a way, and he's kind of a metaphor and a metonym in the story, you know, but it is, it is the book is more about me than about him. But the book couldn't exist without him, if that makes sense. And I wouldn't be here talking to you if it weren't for him. So anyway, end of the story is that um, from the start, it was clear, you know, that this story was mine and that Salinger was a a piece of it. It was kind of like a linchpin in it, but that it was my story. Mm -hmm. And editors and agents were still interested in it. Um, And I already had an agent. And I actually said to her, of, of course, I said to her, you know, all these... Editors are calling me, asking me to turn this into a book. And for years, I got calls. I mean, years. I remember in 2008 sitting in my office, I was the editor in chief of a magazine, and an editor from Australia called me to ask me to turn it into a book. He was at some, like a friend's country house, like in the Hamptons, and found an old copy of this magazine, read the essay, and immediately called me. And I think they're just, I don't know. I don't want to like be flatter myself, but I think that maybe it had something to do with the way the story was told and the writing as well as the Salinger component. So anyway, end of the story is that years later, um, I, I had been working on a novel. I published a novel. About six months later, Salinger died. And because I was sort of a little, just a little bit, not like Joyce Maynard, I was a little, little, little bit known as like that Salinger girl. Um, a couple places asked me to write a piece for them. I did some radio pieces, you know, for MPR and um just like small things and the BBC read one of those pieces for sleet and called me and said, "Do you want to turn this into a full-length radio documentary that's focused on the fans?" And I said, "Yes." I spent 9 months doing that and then the script was circulated in the British publishing industry An editor read it and called me and said, do you want to turn this into a book? And I actually said, no, I don't. Not because, just because I didn't think it was a book. I didn't think there was enough material for it to be a book. I felt like I said everything I have to say about this. What else is there to say? And he kept pressing me and pressing me and time went by. And eventually he had a meeting with my agent and he convinced her that I should do it. And I still kept saying no. Um, but even when the book was sold, you know, it was called my Salinger year from the start, but, um, it was clear that the shape of the story, that it was kind of, you know, a Kunstler-Roman with Salinger kind of wove it through it. And the truth is that Knopf, my publisher, did not try to kind of oversell the Salinger part. They didn't, they were great. Um, I know this is like a very Pollyanna-ish answer, (laughs) No, 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 but it's not. I mean, my entry to publishing was the same thing.
1: I never thought that somebody that never did anything in boxing but happened to get trained by Olympic champions in Cuba, like, who cares? I didn't do anything with it. What's interesting about that, and that's that's how I got a book deal, two book deals out of it. So I, I completely personally identify with what you're saying. But I also think, you know... I checked in with you because you are one of these few people that has known his voice when I was doing a thing about Betty Epps, who secretly recorded Salinger's voice. Now, there's nothing monumental about what she recorded with his voice for 27 minutes. And nonetheless, she was offered half a million dollars and just reporting that she wants to destroy it went everywhere globally. After after I put it out in Bloomberg, all of these other places picked up the story just to hear his voice and Salinger's son contacted her I don't know how he got her address but sends her a message please give me back my father's voice I would love to hear his voice so there is this Zapruder film quality to just anybody in proximity to this man and so I want to get back to the process of you writing the book but also just to try to understand that this is a guy who does everything you're not supposed to do in order to get the world addicted to you. I don't want my picture on books. Um, I don't give press interviews. I mean, he's done a couple of interviews in his career, but almost nothing. I hate the marketing of my book. Uh, I stopped publishing in 1965 and now it's treated by people that seem threatened by him as if that's the ultimate overarching strategy
0: (laughs) to get everybody
1: obsessed with you as if show me the next person who did it. Kind of thing it just doesn't really exist so i, I want to ask you um in a, in an era now where it, it's reading books is broccoli for most people um you can't get people to stop reading this person you can't get them to stop being curious about him what is it as somebody that has had this incredibly distinctive proximity to the man dealing with him on the phone and dealing with his fans what do you make of the secret sauce of who he is that infiltrates the work that people just can't get enough of?
0: I mean, I feel like there, are in a way, I mean, my impulse is to tease out the work from the man. I mean, I'm gonna back up and say one question that I'm asked all the time and that I don't have an answer for is do, young people, kids, teenagers still read Salinger. Um, So people always ask me this, you know, people, let's just say like 30 and above or 35 and above always wanna know this. And I'm not sure. It seems like there's no blanket answer. You know, I like I went to, I visited a class at Tufts a few weeks ago And several kids said Catcher in the Rye is my favorite novel. And I read your book because I loved The Catcher in the Rye. Um, And then I also talked to kids who were like, ugh, this is the stupidest book I've ever read. Like, I have no interest. Um, My son, who is almost 17, reports that his friends are not particularly interested in Salinger in the way that our generation certainly was. Um, And so I wonder about... I feel like very Carrie Bradshaw, being like, and I couldn't help but wonder, um, <laughs> like, I can't help but wonder, you know, he, what is going to happen and who is fueling all this? Like, it's obviously a kind of older generation that is fueling this, and it is. Does his mystique hold, hold for, you know, I don't know, Gen Z people, significantly younger than we are. Um, That's all that said, okay. I feel like the reason I mentioned this is because I feel like there's a way in which one has to tease apart the work from the man. Um, You know, in that a lot of the fans writing to Salinger really didn't know that much about him. Like there were the people who knew that he was a World War II vet and they knew some specifics of his service um, during World War II. Um, And then there were a whole lot of people who really didn't know anything about him and who thought he was Holden Caulfield. There were so many people who actually were not even aware of like the time-space continuum. They weren't aware that this was a book published like 50 years ago or whatever it was, 40 plus years ago at that time. And they seemed to actually perceive Salinger as being a young person who had written this book. And, And then there were also people who knew that he wasn't but they still kind of, um, there was this conflation of Salinger and Holden. Um, which, which,
1: which, which, sorry to interrupt, but, but I mean, which he also blurred, because he also said, I'll never give this to the movies. The only person who could ever play this is me. And Joyce Maynard says the same thing. It's just like I'm talking to Holden Caulfield when he first courts her. So you know, it's a little hard to separate the two because he intentionally has made it so you can't because there's so much
0: overlap seemingly. Yeah, but then at the same time, I mean, let's put Joyce Maynard aside for a moment. Um, I'm just gonna not say anything at all about her. But in terms of Salinger, I mean, what has happened with him is a sort of classic kind of celebrity silent sort of thing in which every little thing that he's ever said to the press or um, to anyone that's kind of leaked out has become magnified and um, attained this kind of massive significance that it would not have if he had not retreated um, into hermitude, right? So if he had just lived a normal writer's life, even like a life like Thomas Pynchon, where he, you know, didn't like really go out much and like would occasionally like write the liner notes for an album of a band he liked you know but like you knew he was there like living with his wife in an apartment somewhere like he he wasn't a full hermit he just was someone who didn't want to participate in the kind of like publicity and marketing machine and I'm not sure that we would be hanging on to these little shreds that he's given us and you know and and sort of invest them with the kind of um power that one is investing that oh only i could play holden like we just don't know if that is as profound a statement as it's believed to be well well, i mean i personally think in terms of his film stuff like i mean i feel like which is a whole other story but i feel like in terms of him not allowing film adaptations a lot of that just had to do with control right? Because he actually loved the movies. He loved the movies. He loved TV. Um, he, you know, was a huge viewer. He loved to watch things. Oh, sure. And I, I, you know, he did sell this short story to um, Hollywood and, you know, hated what happened with it. And I think felt very burned by this. And I, I think he didn't want, he, he really felt like, especially Catcher, which is, a book that he worked on for so many years I mean it goes back to a short story years and years and years and years before that he was carrying around the trenches with him and whatever like so I can imagine not wanting to lose control over something that you've crafted in such a precise way you know well um so I, anyway. just also,
1: I just also wonder, though,
0: I mean, a couple a couple points to,
1: in regard to that. One is he said, I want Holden to exist in the private imagination of my readers' minds. So it's not just for him to control, but for us to control. Yes, which, it's true. Which we, when I hear that, I go, wow, that's a profound idea to not have Leonardo DiCaprio, instead of playing Basketball Diaries, playing Holden, because you can't think of it the same way ever again. It does change forever, and he even has controlled this after his death. Like I mean, <laughs> that it can't be adapted. And I, I, I wonder. I wanted to ask you, in an age where, well, a this is what 1951, the book comes out. It's the first time that I can think of in any artistic endeavor that the world of adult society thinks that a teenager knows something it doesn't. I can't think of another example of that. I mean, yes, you have Lewis Carroll giving us a a Victorian child for the first time, where that becomes the focus, a female in in literature. But um, that's a profound thing, especially when the central tension of almost all of his work is materialism with spirituality, which doesn't seem like it's ever had more purchase than it does now, where everybody wants to start off, I mean, uh, you have a generation of kids who say they want to be famous rather than any other accomplishment or endeavor. They just want to be famous. And that seems like, it. Like it, in a way, it seems like his work has never been more in bloom in some respects to where Gen Z is than, than like right now. And I, I just don't know how he's able to do that 70 years before where we are to kind of forecast where the culture was headed in some respects.
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't think that was his intention. Um, I think he, I mean, my own sort of schoolmarmish take is simply that what you're describing is simply the definition of actual literature hmm. rather than simply writing, right? Like a book that seems as timely now as it did 70 years ago or 100 years ago or 200 years ago, that is literature, you know, in the way like you read the Foresight Saga, you know, a dissection of like the English middle class. And it feels very relevant to life today. Um, You know, certain Jane Austen novels feel very, very relevant. Sure. Um, And I mean, I could go on and on and it's the same with Catcher because it is a great work. It's an actual work of art. It's not um, uh, something that was sort of designed for mass consumption to sort of be read and tossed away, you know? Yeah. Um, and of, of course there are works that were designed for mass consumption that have stood the test of time. So it's a little bit tricky, but but I I think that you know Salinger was attempting to write he Chris Salinger wanted to be a great writer. He didn't, you know, he also wanted to be famous and he also wanted to sell stories to the New Yorker and um have a very certain he wanted success you know in, in a very sort of specific way sure. um, but I think he also truly wanted to write great sentences and wanted to sort of present the world um, in his own singular way you know from his own special point of view that no one else could replicate and I suppose that's one of the reasons that people respond to Salinger's works so in such a profound way that there really is no one else like him. There's no writer that, you know, sort of views the world the way he does. Um I just was just at a big literary event, a huge huge um kind of gala fundraiser thing for the Center for Fiction and at that event um people kept initiating conversations with me about Salinger, um, I think provoked by the fact that they had just seen the, my Salinger film. Mm-hmm. And there were all of these frenzied conversations with, you know, as in people saying like, oh, for me, Franny and Zoe is my favorite. And I read it over and over again. And I just, I, you know, just, oh, Franny and the restaurant. And then other people saying, you know, oh, for me, it was nine stories. I read nine stories first and nothing compared to it. And, you know, people have such a sort of intimate, attachment to Salinger's work, um, I, I, it's hard to think of any other writer that would kind of spark that same kind of those same kind of frenzied conversations that right. I, I had the other night. Um, pretty, pretty hard for someone to be like, what's your favorite? You know, it's almost as if in choosing in people in sort of choosing their favorite Salinger, they're kind of saying like, this is who I am.
1: Right. Well, and, and of course, I mean, not many authors' work has led people to go out and kill people or attempt to kill people. I mean, I'm seven blocks right now from where John Lennon was murdered. And that yes. um, the explicit intent is to promote readership of The Catcher in the Rye, as the the, the mandate that he says in court when he's being convicted for murder, I, I think that casts another um, aura of of the work. Like it's 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 pretty it becomes a soup rather than a spice of of an angle of this that that very few works of fiction have led people to do such dramatic events that really change the culture in 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 that ancillary way, but a profound way, obviously, with people's connection to the Beatles and John Lennon. And and again, I mean I think I think Chapman said I'm listening to Imagine and John Lennon telling me, imagine a world without possessions. I wonder if you can. And so that guy's a fucking phony. That guy's driving around with a Rolls Royce and living at Deco- the Dakota. And he's lecturing me about possessions. It sounds just like Holden Caulfield calling out the phonies. So yeah, I, I'm i curious. I mean, I I hear what you're saying in terms of removing himself but i mean another angle of that that's quite interesting is people in new hampshire say he wasn't a recluse he went to all the bake-offs he was a a very friendly person to deal with in that community most of the time you know I, i mean you and i have both been there to cornish and um nobody wants to help you to get to him or to learn more about him they want to protect him so there's a lot of contradictions here, and it does seem like he holds up a mirror to a lot of us. I mean, you you mentioned, I I agree with you. I mean, great literature obviously retains its relevance for, for different times, but there's another angle to his work that seems a bit like Truman Show, where when it comes out, we think, oh, it's a disotopian hell to be trapped and be filmed 24 hours a day. And I don't remember what year it came out, 96 or something. But within five years, it's a disotopian hell for people not to be filmed all the time, to not have to be keeping up with the Kardashians and have a film crew wherever you're going. That's a destination. Mm-hmm. And it's it's weird that it can be such a whiplash in the culture that that the idea of him wanting to be private is itself deeply suspect (laughs) to not want to publish books is deeply suspect to not want to go on Oprah and share his views about everything is suspect when it seems to be as his son said it it's really us who are uncomfortable with our need for publicity and not wanting to be private about anything but we project onto him and so I I wonder if you could speak to that angle with this is, is like you're seeing How much of what you were reading with the fan mail, I mean, you were explicitly instructed, I mean, it's kind of said for a laugh in the film and the book, um, by the agency to to not pass it on to Salinger. He didn't want any of the fan mail. Was your overriding feeling reading it of desperation or longing to connect with him? Or what was it emotionally that was the the resonance of that fan mail?
0: Um, It was a mix. I mean, I I would say... There definitely was a kind of, you know, the emotional pitch of the letters was generally on the high side, you mm. know, as in people really wanted to connect with him, definitely. Um, and there's a, a lot of feeling that Salinger was the only person who understood the fan, you know, a lot of I read The Catcher in the Rye and I'd never read a book where the main character seemed like me and, you know, I don't understand how you understand me so well. Um, So there was a lot of longing to connect in that way. Like, I think a lot of people writing out of a profound sense of isolation, um, if only isolation kind of in their own minds, you know. Um, They weren't, you know, all crazed murderers. Like they were sometimes very normal people, but who felt internally like Holden Caulfield. Um, And then there was also a whole, just very specific component, which was um, people, men, all men approximately the same age as Salinger who had had similar experiences during the war. And often they had, they wrote letters explaining that they had read Salinger's work as it was published um, and profoundly connected to it um, and felt that it expressed their, sort of horror um in coming home and um all of the stories no you know, they would sometimes name a story or two but in general they felt like his work captured the almost kind of like post apocalyptic feel um, you know so yes um and um and so those those writers the veterans you know seemed perfectly sane and they didn't seem desperate they seemed kind of like men reflecting, at, you know, toward the end of their life on experiences they'd had as very young men and recognizing that this one particular white writer captured their experiences. Um, and in a way, like their emotional reality, um, in a way that really spoke to them. And, you know, sometimes they would mention that they had read books that were much more straightforwardly about the war, but Salinger's Books were the ones that helped them feel less alone at the time. So that was a very specific type of connection, but all of them were just kind of longing for connection. I don't, in general, I didn't get like an unhinged or desperate feel from most of them. I just got a sort of longing um, to to sort of be in touch with him and have him recognize their experience and their connection to this character he created. I wanted to ask you about, because I've not heard many people talk about this, is I was rereading
1: uh, the Joan Didion review of Salinger before he published his book, which is around, or was intending to publish, republish Hapsworth and stuff like that. And there's an odd line of criticism of his work about his hiding his Jewish identity, that he was half Jewish and that his characters very rarely talk about being Jewish. But this is somebody like, and I say this as somebody where my mother is Jewish, and I know you're Jewish, but if you're half Jewish and your mom has changed her name to pretend to be Jewish and it's hidden from you, and this is an interesting aspect of Anthony Bourdain as well, that his mother hid from him that that she was Jewish until he was Mm -hmm. almost 20. I, I wonder what that component, how much that informs some of his work, aspects of his work um, for you as a reader or for or maybe for some of the fan mail because I I, it's it's an area that I think is a rich mind but very seldomly hear it addressed and it seems misunderstood to some degree or or ungenerously approached.
0: Yeah well I mean I think that um, all Jews want to claim Salinger as their own and then there's a whole world of literary Jews who are like, but he didn't actually write about being Jewish. Um, I mean, here again, I I actually am very skeptical of generational differences and definitions. But I will sort of tell you, answer this question through sort of starting off with an anecdote, which is that my father, who was just a few years younger than Salinger, um, he was born in 28. Um, so just a little younger than Salinger. He would, fought in the Korean War rather than World War II. He was too young. Um for World War II. Um, my father loved Challenger and he related very, very strongly, particularly to the Glass family stories. And the reason for that was partially just happenstance that my father, my father's family basically could have been the Glass family. As in, my father was a child genius. He graduated from high school at age 14. He went to college at 14, he was still wearing knickers. So, you know, this is like the early 40s. um, And um, he was definitely kind of like trotted out by his mother as a child genius all the time. And um, his brother was as well, but had a very different personality. My father also um, in his youth was an actor um, and a Borscht Belt comedian. And he, you know, he very strongly related to the Glass family. He felt that these stories were basically about him. And I mention this in part because my father's experience was in no way unique. So, you know, my dad was part of an acting troupe. It was four men um, who performed comedy routines in the Catskills during the summer and um, acted in plays together at the Henry Street Settlement during the year and also with Stella Adler. And two of those men were um, Bernie Schwartz and, Jerry Stiller, Bernie Schwartz, of course, became Tony Curtis. Um, so their experiences—you know—there I mean, right, are these hugely famous men. They had very, very similar upbringings. Like, I mean, Jerry Stiller, identical upbringing to my dad. You know, and um, and so I do actually feel that there's a way in which—and I'm, I'm going to get to the Jewish part in one second. There's a way in which the kind of cultural and emotional experiences and the kind of class strivings, um, the like attachment to certain types of objects and houses and the fetishization of certain types of apartments and ways of living and um, female beauty. I feel like all of that is very much a part of the kind of worldview of first-generation American Jews. (laughs) Um, Particularly, I mean, Salger obviously grew up uptown and he was kind of in the minority. Like, um, you know, my dad and his friends were all like Lower East Side, Brooklyn, the Bronx. But there was a way in which there was a kind of universality to the kind of world that he's giving expression to. And I think that for someone like my dad and his cronies, Salinger didn't have to name it. He didn't have to talk about being Jewish. he It didn't have to be explicit because to them it was all there. So that's number one like they they read these books and they felt extraordinarily Jewish to them as Jewish as Saul Bellow, you know, as Jewish as Philip Roth or Isaac Bashevis singer but more specific to their experiences as first generation American near Jews, you know and um, number two i would say that there's a way in which for his generation there was a lot of fear and anxiety about being labeled a jew and we know about salinger that he really i mean this is a thing that like is a little uncomfortable to talk about when he when he was a young man he really was like kind of a striver you know in a very specific sort of way like he wanted to be famous he was wanted to date una o'neill like he He really wanted to kind of make his way in like, kind of like fancy circles. You know, he wanted to be at like the stork club and um, running with a very particular kind of glamorous upper class crowd. And certainly many members of that crowd were Jewish, but they were of a type of Jewishness in which, um, first of all, a type of Jewish, you know, like sort of like German Jewishy, wealthy sort of Jews um, who did not talk about their Jewishness much. And secondly, like at that moment in time, it was potentially dangerous and scary to talk about being Jewish all the time. Um, I feel like in my family, a very Jewish family, <laughs> a lot was kind of taken for granted that you would just know that something or someone was Jewish. Now, um we live in a very different moment now in which you know, identity is kind of prime, um, and is also a commodity. Like, if you're Jewish, why would you not say it? Why would you not write about that explicitly? You know, if you're anything, why would you not write about that explicitly? But that was a different, you know, Salander came of age in a very different moment. Um, We can't, like, even discard the fact that he, like, you know, saw it's hard for me to talk about, but like he saw Hitler's victims, you know. Extensively. Extensively. Yeah, and that was real for him. And that kind of fear was very, very real for people of his generation. Like I saw it firsthand with both my parents. Um, You wouldn't say you were Jewish loudly in public. Or ever in public, you just wouldn't talk about it
1: it does seem in his work also that the omission of things is the ghost and the machinery. Uh, It's one of the great powers of his work. I mean, I think he uses the slur against Jews once in a short story, mistaking it for kite, that somebody Mm. kept calling a, a character a kite. And it's really subtle that it's just this little thing that's there, but it haunts the story. It completely haunts the story with how it resonates for the reader as a closing and um, similarly with, with like, Franny and Zooey, like, I, I find the kind of code switching really interesting about, like, just what you're describing of how Salinger was moving through the world, because it's one of the things I find so interesting about The Silence is, to the hilt, he was the ambitious, the most ambitious, status-obsessed writer you could ever be as a young writer. Really? Yeah. Anything that's not in The New Yorker will not be read it's not worth being read, sort of thing, to, um, to why would I ever want anything to be published? Isn't it enough just to write? What, what, what more need do I have? So it's like these two extremes that you, one has to recognize rather than reconcile in order to kind of get at um, Absolutely. the struggle yeah. that he was, he was feeling. It's like it's not like he can't identify with our desire to be famous. It's that he's trying to get away from that part of himself.
0: Yes. I mean, I think that he embraced it as a very young man and yeah. saw it as something that he could attain with, um, you know, his innate intelligence and a lot of hard work. Um, and I think that what happened, I mean, it's almost like a sort of Faustian sort of story is that he he got that fame um, to a greater degree than he ever thought possible for a literary yeah. writer, right? And then it was not what he expected. He didn't enjoy it in the way that he thought he would. Right. Um,
1: I wanted to ask you just, just last little area. um, What do you think that was the breakdown between female versus male fan letters? Because I, I was doing some talks with Ken Burns when they did um, the Ernest Hemingway documentary. And one of the things that I was trying to explore a little bit when I was writing a review for that was the fact that Hemingway is the personification kind of toxic of toxic masculinity yeah to so many people but what is omitted is the fact that he was really obsessed with the female perspective he began with stuff that was unpublishable dealing with date rape from the perspective of the victim um farewell to arms ends with childbirth leading to the death of mother and child um Hills, Hills Like White Elephants is about a male pressuring a woman into abortion. Um, This doesn't really line up with somebody who's not profoundly interested in women's perspective of things half a century before it becomes sort of commonplace of of discussion. I mean, this was very um, abrasive material to even raise at the time that he was trying to artistically connect with it. Um, do you feel that Salinger has connected with female readers in a meaningful way, or is it more the domain of young men identifying with Holden Caulfield?
0: Oh, I think he really has. I mean, people always assumed that the letters were more from young men, um, but they were not. I would say it was probably 50-50 actually. Interesting. Um, Lots of letters from very, very young women, you know, 13, 14 year old. I remember getting some letters from 12 year olds. Um, People often in the letters told um, Salinger about their lives. You know, they would say, I am a 12-year-old girl in Tokyo, Japan, um, and I go to this school and what have you. So I would say it was pretty equal. I mean, I don't feel like Salinger is a writer who has the kind of stigma that... Hemingway does in terms of his portrayals of women and even his treatment of women, there was a kind of moment where, like at the sort of beginning of the Me Too movement where people were kind of like, oh, he took advantage of Joyce Maynard. I don't mean to say that in a dismissive way because I don't actually feel that way at all. Um, The whole thing is kind of dodgy, But, um, but there was a moment where people were sort of getting nervous about him and then it kind of faded away. Um, and at that same time, I remember there being lots of talk about, like, oh, you know, he's in love with Esme, and she's a little girl, and his stories are all about, you know, pedophilia at the heart, and that kind of rose up, and then it went away. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I, I've, my impression is that his work resonates equally with women um, and men. I do feel like. Um, Franny and Zoe tends to be a favorite of women, um, yeah. and that women really, really love the Franny character, which was certainly true for me when I read all of his work in one weekend. <laughs> I very strongly identified with her and with her kind of existential crises, and I, I think my like one second analysis of this is that, you know, Franny in that story um, it is suffering from a kind of almost like a feeling of fraudulence in the world that's quite different from holding Caulfield's, you know, admonishment of everyone as a phony. It's very different from that. She more is kind of feeling that the world is so superficial and that she had these kind of goals for herself and ambitions that now as she has gotten older, finds just abhorrent and she wants to live a more meaningful life but she doesn't know how to do it. And I think these feelings are, I mean, I think they're common to everyone, but I think that young women and women in general can be very susceptible to them because I mean, frankly, like as with Franny, there's so much emphasis on one's appearance, right? And the ways in which one's appearance defines one and determines one's life. And this is part of what Franny is bristling at, right? That she's beautiful and um, she's led a kind of charmed life. And she feels in her soul that, her, that she does not deserve this, that she's not a good person. And so this leads her to sort of see the fraudulence in everyone's life. Mm-hmm. And it leads her to basically have a nervous breakdown because if you see the whole world is fraudulent and the whole, you know, system on which um, our lives are constructed, our societal structures is fraudulent. You can't live, you can't go on. You you know, you're going to commit suicide or take to your room screaming and pull your hair out. So um, yeah, I think that women sort of identify with her crisis in a really profound way and that Salinger really wonderfully and poignantly captures something that a lot of women do go through. Mm.
1: I guess last question is, Matt Salinger, I guess about a year or two ago, disclosed that all of the work is gonna be published, that that Salinger was working on from what, 1965 until his death in 2010, 45 years worth of material. I don't know why it's taking him quite this long now that we're 11 years after the death. I mean, I'm not sure what Matthew Salinger is working on other than this. (laughs) Um, What do you expect some of that work to be? And what do you expect the response to be?
0: I have no idea. I mean, I feel really confused and conflicted about this. Um, It's been, every time there's an announcement like this, someone says to me, oh, you have to write about this. But I don't want to, because I mean, first of all, I'm not a Salinger expert. You know, I've done a lot of research into Salinger. I probably know more than your average person, but I'm not I actually think you know way more about Salinger than I do. I can't quote Salinger at will, you know? Mm. Um, But also because, I mean, I think like everyone, my fear is that this work is bad. Um, I, I for a long time, feared that there was no work, which I think is a valid fear. I was like, is there really work, you know? Shining. Well, like for part of the reason, I'm just gonna turn on the light, like that, you know, for, partly to do with what you were saying about uh, like the shift from I want to publish, I want to publish, I want to publish. My whole life is geared toward writing the perfect New Yorker story to I'm just gonna sit by myself and I'm gonna write for a gazillion years and not publish anything. It's really hard to wrap your brain around that. Um, it's not even like that it's hard to wrap your for me. It's not even that it's hard for me to wrap my brain around I don't want to go on Oprah because I do get that. I really do. Um I was one of the few people that felt sympathetic to Jonathan Franzen when that whole thing happened. But it it just feels confusing. You know, was he really writing during that time? I, I mean, clearly he was because it's going to be published. But my fear is that it's all kind of like Hapworth and like Seymour introduction and it's not good. Um you know, I don't, Raise High the roof. beam Carpenters and Seymour an in Introduction are not, I, I don't think they're good. Like, I think they're basically unreadable and he should have been reined in, you know, he should have been edited properly. And like those stories, there should have been more drafts of them to get them to a place that works. And, um, but he was too famous for that at that point. And um, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. My fear is that they're bad, um, I hope that that's not true. I hope they're amazing, but I fear that they're bad. What do you think? Uh, I absolutely
1: despise Hapsworth. I, I, I've never got. It's the only thing of his I've never gotten through. Um, yeah, it's unreadable. Yeah, uh, I had that initial impression with with um, Raise Eye of the Roof, Carpenters, and Seymour introduction. I have a different point of view on them now where they're actually both of those are my two favorites of his, but I began feeling the same way as you. I just think that they're, I thought he had fallen off, but I think what he's doing is a bit like painters don't have an editor. Um, Beethoven and Mozart don't have an editor. They get to choose every note, they get to choose every color and Salinger's moving in that direction. And what I thought is he's, He's just lost his mind or it's too insular. Um, But I think he was willing to go someplace like Seymour in introduction where if your brother's died and you don't know how to deal with it, you don't want the story to end. And so that that is what it's representative of. It's meant to be uncomfortable and strange and weird. And it's not him failing to try to do a New Yorker story. It's him trying to do something very daring in another direction. That I, I'm not saying that people have to like it. I, I'm just saying that I, at some point, I felt like in, in a kind of Zen Cone kind of way, that there was a different mountain than I thought I was climbing in that story. And when I went to the other mountain, he was up there to say, I've been waiting for you for a while.
0: Right. I love that koan. <laughs> yes. And, you were and climbing
1: th- the wrong mountain.
0: <laughs> yeah. And and
1: so his ability to do that, I think, is a direct result of the fact that he tries to stay an outsider, but then again, Hapsworth is the last one, and I can't, it's impenetrable to me, so you're right, if it's all
0: Hapsworth, good God, I mean. I know, but who knows, maybe it's not, like maybe it's. I don't know, maybe it's amazing. Maybe it's like tales of his life in Cornish. Like, who knows what it is, you know?
1: I mean, if you go by the letters, if you go by the letters that he's writing over the decades, he loses nothing of his power. Just in a letter, a throwaway letter to somebody, the references, the style, the diction, it's still, it has the, what he used to say, the fire between the words. It's still there in a way that nobody else does it. And I can only hope that it's not (laughs) Hapsworth times 100 or whatever. So um, I know you got to go. Thank you so much, Joanna. I really enjoyed this.
0: Thank you for having me. This is so fun to talk.
1: Yeah, thank you so much. Good luck at your reading, by the way. Oh, God. Thank you. (laughs) All right. See you soon. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Tourist Information. The producers are George alarcone Swaby and myself, Bryn Jonathan Butler. Please subscribe or rate the podcast. It helps us to keep bringing them out. Thanks again for listening.